So here we are in chapter 22, and we look this week at Paul telling his testimony. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but you get Paul's testimony in the book of Acts three times. Um, You get it in chapter 9, you get it in chapter 22, and you get it in chapter 26, which right off the bat tells you something, doesn't it? Not exactly what it tells you, but it tells you something. Uh, The author Luke, it at least tells you this, that the author Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, thought it was significant enough to tell us the same story three times. Although each time it's told, it's in a slightly different context and it's to help in a different kind of situation. So there, are a, there is a bit of variety in the way it's told. Um, this one that we're looking at here in chapter 22, um, is, um, it's, it's going to be enjoyable tonight. But as you might know of Paul's story, his testimony, it's pretty radical. It's a pretty you know, like a sharp moment where everything turns around. And when you read Paul's story you can find yourself feeling like, well, mine's not that radical. You know, and that kind of is the bit of the case in Christian circles. It's, it's often the more spectacular testimonies that are the ones that get shared from the front and the rest of us find ourselves thinking, oh, man, oh, yeah, I was never in jail, you know. <laughs> um, never did anything like that. What's my story? Is my story... And you can almost feel the pressure to try to come up with a more stunning story than you've got. Um, and often, often testimonies are told... Um, and then off the back of a testimony, there's an invitation to come and receive Christ because something special happened for a particular person. Is that why Luke keeps repeating Paul's testimony here in the book of Acts? It's because simply by hearing someone else's story, um, you can be converted yourself. Uh, Right up front, I do kind of want to just suggest someone said that recently shared this with me said just to so say you know your testimony is not the gospel so whether you call people to actually become christians off the back of your testimony or someone else's testimony may or may not be a good idea the, th- the thing that we actually want to call people to come and put their trust in jesus off the back of is the gospel story which is not necessarily your testimony although the gospel story is what enabled your testimony. It's Jesus' story, really. That's the gospel. It's, it's the work of Jesus on the cross applied to you. Yep, that's your testimony. And so why does, Paul, why does Luke keep giving Paul's testimony all the way through? Well, I actually think it applies in different circumstances here, but I'm going to do this with it tonight. I'm going to try to identify the key features of a conversion story. Yep. The key features of a conversion story, which if you're a Christian and you consider yourself to be someone who's been converted, you ought to be able to identify these four features in your story. They might not look identical to Paul's, they might not feel as radical as Paul's, but there ought to be, I'll put to you, at least these four features in your story. If you're someone who has been converted, and, and I love that word converted because it gives a really strong sense of what a Christian is. A Christian is not simply someone who's just been around Christian things their whole life. A Christian is not someone who um, has simply learned how to live Christianly and fit in with Christian community. A, a Christian is someone who's been converted. 
Now, the conversion can kind of look different over time, but I want to put to you, it ought to have at least these four features. Um, And what I want you to do is reflect on these features in your life and be bold enough to even reflect and wonder if any of these features is not present in any way in your life, whether you might examine yourself and ask the question, well, am I actually converted in the heart to Christ? Because that is what we are in the business of being together as Christians, not simply a nice mob where we can find friends, although that's wonderful. It's part of God's intention for us. But a Christian community is to hold out the gospel and to see people be genuinely converted in the heart to Christ. Yep, that's at the very centre of what we're doing here. So I'll give you the four features that I'd spot in Paul's testimony. Revelation, humiliation, response and redirection. We'll work through these one at a time and um, hopefully it's helpful. All right? First one, revelation. And when I say revelation, what I mean is this, that Jesus reveals himself to you. That's what revelation is. That that at at the very heart of Christianity is not just you figuring it out because you're smart or you think it's going to work for you, At the very beginning of the Christian life is the Lord Jesus, who is very much alive and well, revealing himself to you. Now, let's see how it happens for Paul. Uh, It's pretty radical for Paul. Pick it up there in verses 4 and 5, and you get a little glimpse of where Paul came from. And I'm just going to keep using the word Paul accidentally tonight instead of Saul. But if you know this story, Saul becomes Paul. Yep with this big change in his life. So verses 4 and 5 tells you who Saul was. He was someone who was opposed to Jesus and his followers. He was convinced that Jesus was not the Jewish Messiah. He thought it was all rubbish in order to protect true um, God-honouring Judaism. He was hunting down these cults or sects of of Judaism and he saw that those who were following the way of Jesus... Um, to be those who were to be hunted down. So look at verse 4, he says, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest, all the council um, can themselves testify to how I obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul is obsessed, he says that about himself, and he's on a mission to go and find more of these followers of the way and bring them back to Jerusalem for imprisonment because he's trying to extinguish what he believes to be a false cult that's doing no good. And on his way to this place called Damascus, on his way to hunt down more Christians, he meets the risen Lord Jesus. And Jesus reveals himself to him. So look at verses 6 and 9, or 6 through to 9. At about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So this is the moment that the risen Lord Jesus reveals himself to Saul. And you notice it happens at noon. 
And noon, I'm assuming that's mentioned because it's the moment in the day that's the hottest and the sun is the brightest. And it's the kind of time you're trying to wear sunglasses and a hat anyway, maybe not in the ancient world. Did they have sunnies back then? I don't know. But it's the time when the sun's already bright, but in this moment of the brightness of the sun, Saul sees a really bright light. A kind of bright light that makes the sun look like a cloud or whatever it is, but this bright a brighter light flashes around him and he identifies immediately that it's from heaven, it's not an earthly light, and it flashes around him and is so powerful and overwhelming that he falls to the ground and you pick it up there in verse 11 later on that he's blinded by this light. In this moment, he, he, he goes to the ground and he's blinded and he hears a voice while he's on the ground, blinded, and the voice is the voice of Jesus who says, Saul, Saul, so he knows this is for him, why are you persecuting me? If you ever want to find a verse that describes Jesus being protective of his people and taking personally what people do to his people, this is one. Because you notice Paul's out there trying to persecute the followers of Jesus, but Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, what you do to them, you do to me because they're mine. That's how much heart God, Jesus, has for his people. That's how attached he is to his church. He feels what happens to his followers and whatever happens to them is happening to him. So you, if you're opposing them, if you're disrespecting them, you're disrespecting Jesus. And this is still the case today. Jesus still feels that way about his people. So anyone who's directly attacking the church of Jesus today is attacking Jesus. Anyone who's disrespecting the church is disrespecting Jesus. Anyone who's trash-talking Christians is trash-talking the Lord of the universe. Anyone who's even just politely keeping their distance from the church because they think it's a joke is politely keeping their distance from the Lord of the universe and thinking he's a joke. Jesus takes it seriously what happens to his people. Now Saul wants to confirm who it is who's speaking to him and so he says there in verse 8, Who are you, Lord? He knows it's the Lord. He's just like, can you give me your name? I think I know what's going on here, but can you clarify? And look what Jesus says. He says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Yep, makes it really clear. I'm the bloke that grew up in Nazareth. Yep, I'm that guy. I'm that guy who you actually were part of the mob that, you know, sent me to the cross. I'm the guy that died. I'm the guy that rose again from the dead and now I'm appearing to you so that you would know that I am the risen Lord. This one that you've been trying to take down is the Jewish Messiah and he's appearing to Paul in this moment. And it's personal for Paul. Yep, it's personal for Paul. You might notice he mentions there what his companions experienced because Saul's not on his own on the road there. He says, um, verse 9, my companions saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of him who was speaking. But Saul understands the voice because it's for him. He, Jesus chooses to reveal himself to Saul. And here's where it begins, people. Following Jesus, um, being a Christian, it begins with Jesus revealing himself to you. Yep. Now, for some of you, you might have a story where you're like, yeah, I've got an amazing, miraculous, spectacular conversion. I've got this moment where a booming voice hit me and knocked me to the ground as well. And if that's the moment you've experienced, then power to you. That's beautiful and it's brilliant and it's awesome, but it's pretty rare. Yep. For most of us, we haven't had that kind of experience. But I wonder whether some of you might have had a sudden moment 
where Jesus revealed himself to you, a moment where you just found yourself thinking, oh, it's true. Jesus is alive. He really is the Lord. Have you got a particular moment in your life? Because you might have a moment where you found yourself thinking, there is a God who made me. And he did come and save me with his son. And it's like it all just, it's like the blindfold comes off. And, and, and if you've got a moment like that, it's because God has chosen to open the eyes of your heart in that moment and help you see that it's true and help you to know his love for you in Jesus. Yep. And it might have been a sudden moment that happened while you're in, in a private moment where you're solo, all alone, sitting on your bed or whatever, and like, boom. It might have happened when you were hanging out with some friends and they were talking to you and answering your questions and they prayed for you and it was like then in that moment. It might have even been on church camp or during church, during the singing or the word or the preaching or whatever, and you're like, boom, there it is. You might have a moment, a sudden moment, where you can say, yes, Jesus revealed himself to me in that moment. Or yours might be, over a period of time, Jesus revealed himself to me. Over a period of a year or two, and I think this is more typically the adult type of conversion, if you've spent 20 or 30 or 40 years putting together your own framework of belief in this world, chances are it's going to take a year or two for that to be undone and for a new framework that's honouring the God to be put together. And so often having Jesus reveal himself to an adult will be this period of time where you might even be carefully you know, investigating the things about Jesus and finding out information and, and adopting belief and laying aside existing belief. That might happen over a period of time in church. You might have gone to a course like Foundations or something like that. Or you might have been in a group where people were slowly helping you get it. And, and you don't know the exact moment where Jesus revealed, but it's like over this period, Jesus revealed himself to you. Because you know when you think back a year or two, you're like, yeah, I didn't believe this, but I do now, and I'm a Christian now. So it happens sometime in that moment. No matter how it happens, it only happens because Jesus is revealing himself to you. And without him doing that by his Holy Spirit, the smartest of us still can't get it. I'll give you one more version of Jesus revealing himself to you that I think is really common, and that is the drip feed. It's the person that's grown up in a Christian household and from a really early age has been prayed for and prayed with. Every night you've been tucked into bed. The Bible's been opened in your household. You've been to kids' church and you've been to youth and maybe you got it in school as well, but it's just been drip, 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 drip your whole life. You, you can't mark a moment. You can't even mark a, mark a season. You're like, Jesus has been revealing himself to me through every moment as I've grown that is the revelation of Jesus. And if you are privileged enough to have grown up in a Christian household, that is spectacular to have Jesus reveal himself to you in and through all of that. And if you can today say, no, he's real and he's the Lord and he's my Lord and he saved me, it's because he's revealed himself to you. Otherwise, you'd be sitting there thinking, yeah, they all believe this, but I don't know about that for myself. And if that's you, you don't have to fake it. <laughs> if, if you find yourself thinking, yeah, I, I don't think I really believe, I don't think he's revealed himself to me, my one request to you or my, my suggestion to you would, 
beg him to show himself. Because that's what you need. That's what we all need. And we don't get to Christ without him revealing himself to us. Revelation. Here's the second one. Humiliation. And when I use that word humiliation, let me kind of explain why I'm using that word because there's features to that word that I'm not trying to suggest, but there's other features I am. What I'm meaning by this is part of a conversion, a key feature in a conversion is to be brought down or be brought low in some way by a merciful God so that you can humbly recognise your sin. Yep. Key feature. To be brought low by a gracious God so that you can see your sin. Now notice Paul, when the brilliance of the glory of Jesus shines around him, do you notice the brilliance of Jesus' glory doesn't just leave him filled with a really nice warm glow? You know, when Jesus appears and starts flashing around him, Saul doesn't simply go, oh, wonderful, this is excellent, I want to do this with my life. No, it knocks him to the ground and it blinds him. You want to talk about humiliation? There it is. The man who was leading the mission, you know, the man who knew where he was going, the man who had a plan and was really well respected, floored by a gracious God. And, you know, he's blinded. You don't get it in chapter 22. You get it in the chapter 9 account. He's blinded for three days before Ananias gets the chance to pray for him. And in verse 11, look at, look at what it says there. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, you know, because the brilliance of the light blinded me. Like he's, he, he, he's now in a place where he's so humbled, he can't function, he can't walk, he can't get himself anywhere. He needs to be led by the hand. He's now completely dependent. And when he gets to Damascus, he sits down, blind, in the dark, for three days. And the other thing he chooses to do during those three days, which I think gives us a evidence that he really is repenting of his sin, is he chooses to fast. Like, he doesn't eat. You get that detail in chapter 9 as well. He doesn't eat or drink for three days straight. So picture him sitting down, blind, not eating. What's going through his head? What's going through his heart? Um, we're guessing, at this point you're speculating, but I reckon he's thinking back. <laughs> yep, he's thinking about what he's been up to. He's realising how wrong he was. He's realising who Jesus really is and he gives it time. He sits in that moment for three days. Anguish, pain. I actually think likely repenting, reflecting on his own sin and acknowledging his fault. Acknowledging how wrong he had it. How could he not have been reflecting on that for those three dark days without food? It's repentance. It's lamenting. It's acknowledging sin. So he's brought low, but as he's brought low, he doesn't simply get angry. He doesn't simply curse the situation. He doesn't blame other people. It's just while he's low, he's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess my sin in this moment. And I think this is a key feature in conversion, to be brought low by a gracious God so that you get the chance to admit your sin and your wickedness. And this may be a feature 
that you've yet to do or experience. Think into it. I think God often uses crises or hardship or personal blowout or big mistakes or stuff-ups that we have to actually bring us slow. And maybe that's part of your story. You were painfully slowed right down. You were stopped in your tracks. And instead, in that moment, instead of blaming everyone and everything and cursing and resenting God, you found yourself able to admit your own sin. And see, the real problem here is me, you know? It's such a key moment. It's such a crucial step in conversion is to be brought low, see your sin, and particularly see your sin before a holy God. And until you do that, it's really hard to make sense of the cross. It's hard to understand why you really needed God to die so you could be forgiven. And it's really hard to be a Christian that's got joy in your salvation. But when you see your sin, when you're brought low and you can acknowledge it and admit it before a holy God, you can then turn and celebrate forgiveness, humiliation. Can you see how your gracious God has humbled you and brought you low to enable you to see your sin? Maybe it was big for you. Maybe you did get arrested and chucked in jail. Maybe you did do something wrong at work and lose your job. Maybe you did do things that ruined your marriage. Maybe you did behave in ways that wrecked your friendships. Or maybe hard just came flying your way and finances are stripped away and there's a car accident or there's death in the family and it's one after the other and there's sickness and disease and you're just smashed in that moment. But did God use that bringing you low so you could see things about yourself? Acknowledge your sin. I think you've got a choice, by the way, when you're knocked down. And we will be knocked down in life multiple, multiple times. You know, we've got brothers, you know, who over the next months and years or whatever, we're going to lose them. And there'll be more of us who will go earlier than we're expecting. We will be brought low. We will find ourselves grieving. We will find ourselves in pain. And when we're there in that valley... You've always got a choice. You can turn on God and grow in your agitation towards him and you can turn on people or you can turn towards God. You can, you can in your weakness and your humility and your admission, you can allow God's power to be displayed, understanding his grace for you. You can see your own sin. You can use those moments to repent and cry out for forgiveness and celebrate your salvation and the rescue that Jesus has provided. Humiliation. Is that a feature in your conversion? Have you been able to admit your sin? Third one is response. You can leave them up there, Manny. Um, response. Um, notice what Paul does as this, he gets taken low. Notice the first thing that comes out of his mouth. And when I say response, here's what I'm suggesting. Um, to respond in a way that acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. You know, to in, in, in the moment, to be, to be stripped back and taken down and then to be able to turn to him and say, 
all right, well, you're the Lord and I'm yours and so you lead me. And I think that's what you've got there in Paul at verse 10. Look what he says. What shall I do, Lord? See that question? Okay, what shall I do? It's like, well, what's next here? You know, you tell me, what now? You direct me, because I had a plan for my life and I thought I was pretty good at it and I was going for it with all my strength and now I see that my plan was actually opposed to you, so your plan now. You see that response, that humble response? It's your call, I'm yours, you're the Lord, you get to say now what I do with my life. That's huge, by the way. That's a massive turnaround. And it's actually a turnaround we need to continually have in our lives as we take the reins for ourselves and really want to be the Lord and master of our own lives to keep acknowledging, okay, Lord, you are, you're the one. How would you have me live? This is a key part in a conversion because it's one thing to see Jesus as your saviour, but this is the part where you see him as your Lord and you adopt a posture in life that effectively says, okay, you're the boss, you're the master, you have the right to command me and instruct me, you and you alone have the right to tell me how to live my life. I don't have the right to command my own existence and the peers in my life are not the ones I need to be listening to. You are the Lord. Let me just unpack that a little bit. Not me. I am not the master of my own destiny. I will not take life from you and live it without regard for you, just according to my own sense of things. Uh, my plan for my glorious life often has me as the Lord and it's subtly and sometimes obviously opposed to you and it's just got me at the centre. But I'm not going to do that. Not me. Not me is the response. You, Lord. And not my peers. I'm not going to let them be Lord. In other words, I'm not going to let them dictate how I live. And when I say peers, what I'm saying is, what is the stage of life you're in right now and what are the rest of your peers typically pursuing right now? And what messages are you receiving from them through multiple channels about what you ought to be doing right now? And you can let that messaging be Lord and direct what you do with your life. Because those messages are powerful to tell you how to live. What stage are you at? What are your peers telling you? If you're a teen, I don't know, I'm going to go through big generalisations here, okay? Warning, if you're a teen, chances are you're thinking, I'm going to do anything I can to fit in and get friends and I'm just going to survive. Yep. So what have I got to do? Well, they'll tell you. If I'm a young adult, I'm going to be trying to um, just pursue all the best experiences I can and that usually involves travel and a whole bunch of things and that's what they're telling me I have to do and I've got to post about it as well, so I've got to do that. <laughs> if I'm young married, I'm thinking, okay, I've got to make my marriage look like bliss. You know, these are the honeymoon years and I've just got to be living the dream and posting about it as well. If you're a young family, you're probably thinking, all right, I've got to make it look like I, we know what we're doing here um, and we're enjoying it and we're doing it outdoors and, um, and, and we're wonderful and we've got it under control and we make mistakes but we're awesome and we're cool and we're relaxed and we're not yelling at each other all the time. 
If you're older family, you probably you get messages to say, oh, I've got to just try and make it look like I'm so proud of all my kids' achievements and they've all grown up so wonderfully and I'm going to tell the world about it and make sure I've got all my investments in order. That's what you'll be told. If you're of retirement age, I don't know, is it cruise ships? <laughs> are your friends just going on cruises and telling you how wonderful they are? Maybe COVID's wrecked that a bit. Shell collecting, all that kind of stuff. That's a bit brutal, isn't it? It's me in a few years. What are the messages that come at you in this stage of life from your peers that you can be tempted to let be the Lord of how you live? And can you turn away from those messages? Can you not let your peers be Lord? And can you instead ask the true Lord, how would you have me live? How can I best serve you now in this season with what you've given me? What do you want me to do with this? I dare you to keep asking that question right through your life with a humble posture, acknowledging he's the one who has the right to tell you how to live. Fourth thing, feature that you'd see in a conversion is, you know, if you position yourself before God and say, okay, well, what do you want me to live? Then he's going to tell you. He's going to tell you, and this is the redirection. This is the reassignment of your life. And, um, and the question is, you know, as Jesus redirects your life, how are you going at obeying the direction that Jesus give, is giving you in your life? You certainly see Paul being reassigned, don't you? You know, um, he gets told in verse 10, get up, go to Damascus. You're going to get a new assignment when you get there. Verses 12 to 13, um, he, gets, he gets a message from the Lord, but it's through Ananias. You can see that there, verse 13, he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And in that very moment, I was able to see. And then this is what Ananias said to him, verse 14, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. My, I was... My tears started welling up when you read that, Johnny. I had to do that tongue thing on the top of the mouth. Never heard of that one before. Not that we should try and stop ourselves from crying. It's all right. Cry away. This concept of God's chosen you to know his will. He wants you to know what he wants. And he's chosen you to see the righteous one. That's Jesus. And hear his words. Now, Paul gets that in a spectacular revelation. But if you've come to Christ, just know this. God has chosen you to know what he wants. And he's chosen you to see Jesus. And maybe you're like, I haven't actually seen the guy standing in front of me, but there's revelation that's come to you about Jesus. Where you, and you hear him. And you hear him by the Spirit as you read the Scriptures and you hear him in other ways maybe as well. well how wonderful. It's God's initiative. He chooses. And, and, and you see the instruction that's given to Paul. Look at verse 15. It's pretty clear. You'll be my witness to all the people of what you've seen and heard. So Paul or Saul, here's the deal from now on. Instead of crushing the way of my son, you're going to be my witness. You're going to be the one who's heralding and testifying to Jesus. You're going to be the one telling anyone and everyone you can that he is real, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, that he did die and he did rise again and there is the offer of forgiveness and it's all now come through Jesus and you just got to keep doing that. That's Paul's job. 
So his job's really been flipped on its head. And verse 16, I love the language there, isn't it good? Um, now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised, wash your sins away, calling on his name. It's like, go on, get up and go. No, no faffing around. We're not going to faff in this life, all right? Get up and go. Be baptised. The symbol of sin being washed away, which for Paul would have been huge. He would have been acutely aware of what he had done. And, and here's, here's, here's the Lord saying, uh, your sin's been washed away, mate. You know, saying it through Ananias. And for Paul, there's a whole new identification that he receives. A whole new mission, a whole new life, a whole new purpose. From now on, mate, you are a forgiven follower of Jesus. Get out there and share about me. And he's sent to the Gentiles. It's a massive turnaround. It's a massive redirection. He goes from like basically being a terrorist, obsessed with extinguishing the way of Jesus, to being an activist, now obsessed with promoting the way of Jesus. Massive redirection. And Paul or Saul just says, okay, and he goes. And he goes at great cost. Redirection at great cost. Feel like you've been redirected in your life? And maybe some of you feel like you have. Maybe you've had a, a massive kind of redirection and reassigning in your life. You might say, oh, I don't feel like I've got a special assignment from God. Don't stress, you're not the Apostle Paul. All right? God can give special assignments for sure. But don't be stressed if he hasn't given you one because, in fact, he's given all of us the most ultimate special assignment in life and that is to simply but deeply live in faithful obedience to Jesus every day. There's your new mission. Not to live for yourself, to live in faithful, daily obedience to Jesus. Continue to trust in him for your salvation and continue to obey him, accepting his direction constantly. You exist and you've been saved to honour God through trusting and obeying. And when I say obey, there's no area of your life where you're not meant to obey. If Jesus is going to be Lord in your life, you need to let him be Lord in all areas. But our temptation is to say, okay, I'll, I'll come and redirect me, Lord. Um, tell me what you want in this area and that area. But subtly we're like, but not this one and not that one. I'm, going to, I'm not going to give you access there because that's going to be too painful. I know what you're probably going to say. So let's just talk about these things the easier ones. And Jesus is like, no, no, I want all areas. Uh, I've got goodness for you to obey me in all areas. He's like, in your relationships, I want you to stop controlling people and manipulating and living in resentment and hatred and gossiping and slander. And I want you to start loving and serving in all your relationships. Sexually, I want you to stop sleeping with the person if you're not married to them. And I want you to honour me with your body. There's no area that's off, off limits here. Financially, he says, I want you to stop finding security in keeping money for yourselves and spending it all on yourself. Instead, just give generously and excel in the grace of giving. In regards to all good things and even substances that, that, that we have in our life, he says, stop making good things into ultimate things. Stop becoming dependent on the things and developing addictions and, 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 and dependencies around the good things that I give you. Instead, just glorify me in enjoying good things. And if you've got dependencies and addictions that have developed, 
Don't be ashamed to admit it and just get the help you need. With your time and your talents, stop using everything you've got for your own glory, which is our tendency, and maximise the use of your gifts and your talents in serving Jesus. There's a a little snippet of the kind of areas that Jesus is going to call us to obedience in and there's, there's no area that's off limits. You let him be Lord, let him redirect your life and trust him that he knows what's best. It will be costly, but Jesus knows what he's doing with us. These are the features I think you can identify of conversion. Can you see them in your life? Is there anything that might be missing? Do you need to think hard about something that maybe has not gone on for you? Do you need to consider whether you're converted properly? Do you need to do business with God? Maybe you've just got a lot of celebrating to do as you look at those four things and enjoying of God and his goodness to you. How about I pray? Uh, Father, we're so glad that you're a God who reveals yourself to us. You reveal yourself through creation. You reveal yourself through our conscience. But ultimately, you reveal yourself through Christ, your son. Thank you so much for coming and standing on the stage in human history and showing yourself to us. Thank you for showing yourself to Paul. Thank you for revealing your goodness to us. Please, Lord, we want to honour you with our lives. Please keep being at work in us by your spirit. And Lord, would you help those who tonight maybe have identified things that have not yet happened, would you help them be courageous enough to acknowledge it and come for you and be open to you doing a real work in their life? And all the people said, Amen. Amen.